The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. In our study of 2 Thessalonians, we've been learning about the Antichrist. He's a figure in the prophecy of Scripture that I think most people in our culture, even those who don't regularly attend church or have never attended church, have heard about, but few even inside the church know much about. Antichrist is not so much a name as it is a title. It refers to a man controlled by Satan who will one day rise up in opposition to Christ and demand to be worshipped by the world. That's why he's called the Antichrist. He comes against Christ and in the place of Christ. He's referred to by several titles in Scripture. But in 2 Thessalonians, he's called the man of lawlessness or the son of destruction. He is a man who will be characterized by his rebellion against God's law and authority. The man of lawlessness. And he will come in the power of Satan to destroy and cause destruction upon the earth and lead as many as he can to damnation. So he is the son of destruction. Now the disciples in the early church were taught about the Antichrist. Paul taught about this man as part of his basic discipleship of new believers. For example, he wrote in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 5, Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? These things refers to the coming of the Antichrist and his rebellion. So when Paul was with the church in Thessalonica, indeed he planted the church in Thessalonica, he taught them about the Antichrist and other matters concerning end times to these new believers as part of his basic discipleship of them. Evidently, teaching about the end times and the role of the Antichrist continued in the early church as well. One of the earliest known Christian writings outside the New Testament, if not the oldest known Christian writing outside the Old Testament, is a writing known as the Didache, which means teaching. Scholars have dated it to the late first century, which means it was probably written around the same time that John wrote the book of Revelation. For a time, the writing was circulated among early churches, but somehow it became lost in history. And until a copy was found in 1873, it was known only through other Christian writings that referred to it or quoted from it. Now, to be clear, the book wasn't divinely inspired, and therefore it doesn't belong in the canon of Scripture. In fact, it's not always the clearest in what it teaches or the most helpful, but its importance lies in the fact that it reflects early teaching in the early church, as early as the first century. And it seems to have been written as a kind of Christian handbook, part catechism part instruction manual for the church. Now at the end of the book, the focus turns to the end times. And there is found a very interesting passage. 
It says, and I'm reading from the 16th chapter of the Didache, In the last days, the false prophets and corruptors will be multiplied, and the love will be turned into hate. For when lawlessness increases, they will hate each other, and they will persecute, and they will betray each other. Then will appear the world deceiver as a son of God, and he will do signs and wonders, and the earth will be delivered into his hands, and he will do unlawful things that have never happened from eternity. What the Didache refers to as the world deceiver is, as we've been finding here in 2 Thessalonians, the Antichrist. The early Christians believed that the Antichrist would be a man, not a movement. And that in deception, he would come as a son of God. That is, as a false Christ. And that he would do signs and wonders. That he would rule the world. And he would do terrible things that the world has never seen before. This was part of the doctrine of the early church. They understood Scripture passages such as those in Daniel and in Matthew and in 1 John and Revelation and indeed 2 Thessalonians, passages we've studied in previous weeks, to teach that in the last days a man would come as a deceiver of the world and present himself like Christ to be worshipped. Now we recognize that teaching about the Antichrist is not critical for salvation. You can be saved and know nothing about the Antichrist. And a believer could live in a manner worthy of Christ and have never heard about Him. But at the same time, we ought not to shy away from anything that Scripture teaches. And so let's once again look at what God's Word teaches about the Antichrist in our continuing study of 2 Thessalonians. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1 through 8. And our focus this morning will be on verses 6 to 8, but to get the context, we'll begin in verse 1. Now, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming." Well, this is now our third week studying this passage, and we're progressing through it slowly, bit by bit, because likely much of what Paul teaches here is less familiar, if not unfamiliar, to you. I want to 
again remind you that Paul wrote this section of his letter to correct false teaching that had plagued the church in Thessalonica. False teachers were claiming that the Lord had begun to pour out His wrath in judgment on the earth against sin. This judgment is known throughout Scripture as the day of the Lord. And Paul had taught them about this worldwide judgment that was sure to come. But that it's not a day of judgment for believers. He had told them this, and they knew it. So believers need not fear the coming day of the Lord. But, in Paul's absence from that city, false teachers had deceived the church and told them that the day of the Lord had come. That it wasn't future. That in fact, they were living through it. And apparently the church was vulnerable to this false teaching because the persecution that they suffered, which was very severe. Perhaps some had even died because of it. And that persecution seemed like proof that the false teachers were right. That they were experiencing the Lord's judgment. And so Paul wrote in response to comfort the church and also correct the false teaching. Now as proof that the day of the Lord hadn't come, he reminded them of his previous teaching. When he had been with them, he taught them that the day of the Lord would not come until the Antichrist came and rebelled against God by taking his seat in the temple and proclaiming himself to be God. That's verses 3 and 4 that we studied last time. The Antichrist will come, rebel against God, set himself up in the temple and proclaim himself to be God and demand worship. So, Paul taught that the Antichrist comes before Christ comes to judge the earth. That's the order of future events. The Antichrist comes before Christ comes to judge the earth. Now, Paul had taught them all of this before. What he wrote in chapter 2 was review. He was simply reminding them of what they already knew. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? That word told is in a certain kind of tense that indicates repeated past action. He did this again and again. It wasn't a one-time teaching. Now, we might wish that Paul had included more details that he had told them before. But what we have is what the Holy Spirit wanted us to have. In this chapter, we find a basic outline of the character and the activity of the Antichrist. And so far in our study, we've learned a number of important details. As I said, we've learned that the Antichrist comes before the day of the Lord. Before Christ comes to judge the earth. We've also learned that He will oppose all religious worship except for worship that centers on Him. We've learned that He will sit in a future temple in Jerusalem and will proclaim Himself to be God, a rebellion that Jesus called the abomination of desolation, which is also referred to in the book of Daniel. Now, as we continue our study in verses 6-8, to we learn two more aspects of the activity of the Antichrist. Two more aspects of the activity of the Antichrist. First, the time of the Antichrist is not yet. The time of the Antichrist is not yet. 
Paul writes again in verses 6 to 7, And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. There is coming a time, according to verse 6, that the Antichrist will be revealed. This word revealed is the same word Paul used in verse 3. The day of the Lord will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The prophecies about him will come to pass and the one who is known now only by way of description will be made fully known. His identity will be uncovered and the world will know Him. Now, when will that happen? Well, Paul tells us. He will be revealed in His time. That's when the Antichrist will be unveiled. That word for time is the Greek word kairos which refers to a definite fixed period of time. Not so much chronological clock time, the passing of time, but a season of time marked. A season of time marked out for His coming. At the right time. At the appointed time. This figure will come. It will be His time to unleash His destruction on earth. But, he's not in control of when he comes. His time is not yet because he is restrained from coming. Paul says this in two different ways in verses 6 and 7. Each time he uses the same root word, which has a basic meaning of to hold down. The Antichrist is being held down in the sense that he is being prevented from coming. In verse 6, Paul writes of a restraining power that keeps the Antichrist from coming. He says, you know what is restraining him now. The phrase, what is restraining, is literally that which is restraining. That which is restraining. It's a participle in the the neuter gender, which indicates that some force is keeping the Antichrist from appearing before his time. Now notice in verse 7, Paul writes of a restraining, not power, but person who keeps the Antichrist from coming. He who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. This time, the participle is in the masculine gender, indicating that some being is preventing the full outbreak of lawlessness with the coming of the man of lawlessness. Now, in both verses, the participles are in the present tense, which tells us that the Antichrist is being restrained even now. But that won't always be the case. Again, verse 7 says, He who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. The Antichrist will be restrained until the restrainer 
is out of the way. Out of the way means to move to one side. One commentator has likened it to the closed floodgates of a dam which hold back the waters of a river or a lake. When the floodgates are opened or pulled aside, the torrent of restrained water freely rushes forward. And in the same way, when the restrainer lifts his hand in the future, the Antichrist will come rushing in and will be revealed. So who and what is preventing the Antichrist from coming? Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say because he was writing to a church who already knew. You know what is restraining him, Paul says in verse 6. He had taught them this before. Now, the fact that he doesn't go ahead and say who and what is restraining the Antichrist is itself a significant clue in identifying them. Whoever and whatever is keeping the Antichrist from coming must be obvious. It couldn't be something so obscure that only the Thessalonian church could figure it out. So if we think about it for a moment, the identity of the restraining person and the restraining power becomes clear. Who has the ultimate power to restrain evil and hold back Satan's destructive influence in the world? Who has the power to control the timing of future events? These aren't difficult questions. Of course, the answer is God. Only God has the power to ultimately restrain Satan and control the future. So the restrainer is God, and the force that is restraining is simply the hand of God. The Antichrist is restrained from coming until God removes His hand and allows Him to come. The sovereign power of God controls when He comes. When it will be His day. The Antichrist's day. But Paul says in verse 7, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. What does that mean? The word mystery is a term Paul used to describe a truth man cannot know without God's revelation. It's not a riddle. It's just a truth that man cannot know without God's revelation of it. In this case, the mystery is verse 6. The truth that the Antichrist is being restrained even as we speak. But the same lawlessness that characterizes the man of lawlessness is now at work. That is, Rebellion against God's will and authority is already active in this world. It's a kind of preview of what's to come. John basically said the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is in the world already there's an Antichrist to come. But there's the spirit of the Antichrist that's already here. 
That is, his blasphemous rebellion against God is already at work in this world. Now, we've seen that, haven't we? You don't have to search hard for examples in our world of man's rebellion and satanic wickedness. But the trickle of sin that we see now will become a torrent. For now, God is restraining sin and limiting the power of Satan to influence the world. But in the future, He will lift His hand and the trickle will become a flood. Sometimes people wonder if the world could possibly get any worse. What's the answer to that question? The answer is yes. It will get much worse. Unimaginably worse. When the Antichrist comes, his blasphemy will exceed anything that has come before. And according to verses 9 and 10, he will be given the power of Satan to deceive unbelievers to do his bidding. The world has not yet seen the full extent of the wickedness to come. For now, lawlessness is in this world. But the time of the man of lawlessness is not yet. Yet there's hope. We see secondly in verse 8 that the time of the Antichrist will come to an end. It is not yet His time. But when He comes, His time will come to an end. Paul writes, verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. When the appointed time has come, then the lawless one will be revealed. Now that's very similar to what's said in verse 6. That he'd be revealed. But this time, the lawless one will be revealed. The verb is passive. Indicating that someone else will bring the Antichrist to the forefront. Verse 9 tells us who will put forward the Antichrist. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The power behind Antichrist is Satan. Revelation 13 pictures Satan as a dragon and the Antichrist as a beast and all their terrible fury. And it says to the beast, that's the Antichrist, the dragon, that's Satan, gave His power and His throne and great authority. That's the same thing that Paul says in verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. Likely, the Antichrist will be indwelt by a demon. Recall that the only other person in Scripture called the man of lawlessness is Judas. Jesus called Judas that title. And in Luke 22.3, it says that Satan entered Judas as he went to betray Jesus. So once God has lifted His hand, perhaps Satan himself will enter the man who will become the Antichrist and will begin his destructive campaign on earth. 
Now, Paul doesn't go into detail about what the Antichrist will do, but elsewhere, Scripture gives many details. A surprising amount of details. For example, the fullest account is in Revelation 13. A few years ago, I preached five sermons from that chapter, all on the Antichrist, as we studied Revelation verse by verse. We don't have time to walk through that chapter, but let me just give you a summary of what Revelation teaches about him. When this demonically empowered man is brought forward, Satan will raise him as a world ruler. In the beginning, he'll be the ruler the world desires. He'll unify the nations. He'll bring peace across the earth. And he'll even make a covenant with Israel so that the Jews can worship freely. But the peace won't last. He'll come to power with a mighty military unequaled in history. He'll use his popularity to form an empire that not only demands allegiance to him, but demands worship of him. Those who worship him will be marked on their bodies. Those who don't will be marked for death. He'll appear to be invincible with not even death able to overcome him. He'll be worshipped by the world as God and his followers will turn against anyone who doesn't bow to him. He'll kill Christians in numbers too great to count and attempt a final holocaust of the Jews. All these details are in the book of Revelation, among other places. No ruler has ever arisen like the Antichrist. He'll be more powerful than any before. He'll be more wicked than any before. His kingdom will extend farther than any before. His empire will be the greatest and the last in a line of satanically empowered empires. This is the career, the coming career, of the Antichrist. But at last, the Antichrist's time will come to an end with the coming of Christ. In verse 8, the English Standard Version reads that the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing the Antichrist. That word kill is probably not the best translation. The word slay in the New American Standard or the Legacy Standard Bible isn't any better. Now, I understand why these versions translated that way. Paul almost certainly had in mind, as he wrote this, Isaiah 11.4, which says that the Lord shall strike the earth with the rod of His mouth and with the breath of His lips, similar phrase, He shall kill the wicked. But the Greek word Paul used here literally means to take away. It doesn't have to mean kill or slay as the Hebrew word does in Isaiah 11. This Greek word is a word that has a variety of meanings and its translation really depends on the context. In a positive sense, for example, it can mean to take away for adoption. Acts 7.21 In a maybe a neutral sense, it can mean to do away with, Hebrews 10.9. In a negative sense, as it occurs most often, 
it can mean to make an end. To take away, in a sense, to make an end. So kill or slay are possible translations of the word. But the issue I see is that the translation doesn't fit with what Revelation 19 clearly says about the fate of the Antichrist. According to Revelation 19.20, the Antichrist will be captured rather than killed. Here's what John writes. The beast was captured. The beast, again, being the Antichrist throughout the book of Revelation. The beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in the presence, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. Antichrist will come with a, with a great high priest who's called, the, he's called another beast in Revelation 13, also called the false prophet. And John says, these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. They're captured and thrown, John is quite clear on this, thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Rather than killing him outright, he'll be taken captive and thrown there. The lake of fire is hell. The final place of eternal punishment for fallen angels and unrepentant humans. The Antichrist and his false prophet will become hell's first inhabitants. There, the Antichrist will suffer torment for a thousand years until Revelation 20.10 says the devil will join them followed by all unbelievers and all of them collectively will be punished by God for eternity. So, all my favorite translations, the ESV, the NAS, the LSB, all my favorite translations have, I think, over-translated the Greek word here in this passage when it's compared to Revelation 19. It's a word that can mean kill or slay, but doesn't seem like it would mean that here when it's compared with the cross-reference. I think it's best to simply say what Paul literally said. What did he literally say? That the Antichrist will be taken away. That's what he said. The Antichrist will be taken away, which is the basic meaning of the word. Regardless, the Antichrist will be removed from this world, Paul says, by the breath of the Lord Jesus' mouth. By the breath of His mouth, the Antichrist will be removed. That means that Christ's words will be His weapon when He returns. He will speak and the Antichrist will be done away with. This is the ease at which Christ will remove His foe. He doesn't need to take up any other weapons. He doesn't need a massive army behind Him. One little word will fell Him. To paraphrase Martin Luther's hymn. With a word, the Antichrist will be banished. This is also how Christ will judge all the nations when He returns. And with the nations, He really will kill them. Revelation 19.15 says, From His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. The sharp sword coming from Christ's mouth symbolizes His judgment of the nations as He strikes them down with His words. 
And the reason the sword is pictured as coming from his mouth is to depict how the nations are slain. Christ won't need a physical sword to kill his enemies. He'll simply do so with the power of his voice. The word of the Lord is powerful. When he speaks, his will is done. Simply by God's word, the world was created. And simply by Christ's word, the nations will fall. Here in verse 8, Paul also says that the Antichrist will be brought to nothing. Bring to nothing literally means to render inoperative or to abolish. And he's not coming back. His empire and his activity won't continue on. So this probably refers to his empire and activity. Both the man and his empire will be brought to an end as though it were nothing and never existed. This will happen according to the end of verse 8 by the appearance of Christ's coming. Appearance is a word that is only used in the New Testament of Christ's glorious return. It translates a Greek word from which we get the word epiphany. A shining forth. It conveys a sense of glorious shining forth as Christ comes suddenly to earth. When Christ comes in all His glory, it will be as though darkness is brought to nothing. That isn't to say that there won't be sin on the earth, but that darkness won't hold sway. When Christ comes, the time of the Antichrist will come to an end. And so in this passage, we've learned of the rise and the fall of the Antichrist. His time is not yet. And when it is, His time will soon come to an end because Christ has come. That's our hope, isn't it? The coming of Christ. We need not fear anything in this world because we have a superior hope A hope that is sure to come. Christ, who will come this time as a victor. Who will overcome all of His enemies. All of our enemies. Sin, Satan, and death. Christ's return is what we long for. And so let's pray to that end. Will you bow with me in a prayer? Father, thank You that Christ is coming again. He promised He would. And we believe He will. So we say, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Rescue Your church before the great outbreak of tribulation. And come to judge this earth and put down wickedness and establish Your glorious kingdom on this earth. We long for those days. And all here who are Believers in Christ will see those days. All who trust in Christ will be saved from the wrath to come, including eternal judgment. We need only to trust in Christ alone for salvation and acknowledge our sin before You, confessing that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. Thank You that Christ came the first time as a Savior of the world, that all who put their trust in Him will be saved and that Your wrath no longer remains on that person who believes in Christ. 
But for all who have not trusted in Christ, we pray this morning, Father, that You would save them even now as they hear this. Save them. Bring them to saving faith. Because just as it's sure that Christ is coming, You have told us in Your Word that it is sure that Your judgment is coming. The day of the Lord will come. And that will be a terrible day. A sudden, unexpected day. And there will be no hope of escape in that time. So save people here today, Father. Save people as they hear the Gospel across this world. And help us to shine as lights until Christ comes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.